With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, I should probably confess that I have seen our guest on today's show naked many, many times. <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> I would also bet that some of our listeners out there have also seen her naked many, many times. Yay! Naked ladies is not where I thought this episode was going today, but I'm fully on board. Okay, no worries. <laughs> today's show will be wild, but not X-rated. Um, it will be over-the-top fabulous, super glamorous, but most of all, it will be fierce. That's right, because today we welcome Joe Weldon to the show. She is the author of the recently released book, Fierce, the History of Leopard Print. Joe is a terrific writer, and from what you have said, April, I'm guessing that's not all. Nope. She's also an activist, an educator, a photographer, a sizzling stage performer, and on a personal note, she's also the woman who taught me how to tassel twirl. <laughs> Joe is a superstar of the American burlesque scene and also the headmistress of the New York School of Burlesque. And some of you may already be familiar with her stage persona, Joe Boobs. Okay, it's all making sense now. And this is See? about to get super fun. A fierce dressed welcome for this fierce woman. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I love your podcast so oh, much. Oh, yay! I'm glad you're a fan. I listen to it while I sew. <laughs> I listen to it while I make pasties. <laughs> I would just like to state right at the beginning of the episode for the official record that we are, of course, both wearing leopard in the studio. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> what are you wearing? Uh, I am wearing a Diane von Furstenberg wrap top. That uh, reminds me of what she did in the 70s yes. with her famous wrap dresses. So, And it's fabulous red and pink leopard motif. Yeah. I have a particular affinity for red leopard. I don't know if that's my, you know, punk roots. <laughs> I just love it. And it matches your red hair. Um, I'm wearing a vintage velvet leopard sheath dress. Um, and I must admit, before this episode, I didn't have a lot of leopard in my closet. Um, and except for a really beautiful Pierre Cardin coat from the 1960s and a leopard bikini, I guess. But um, after reading your book, I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? Like, <laughs> why have I been neglecting this part of my sartorial self? Like, this is so me. You know, I didn't realize. Now I'm all in, um, which actually made me realize um, that there is so much fantastic vintage leopard clothing out there. And, you know, it's on eBay. It's on Etsy. It's at your local charity shop. Um, it's everywhere once you start looking. And this leads me to the point that it really is one of the most beloved patterns in the history of dress. So I have to ask, when did your fascination with leopard print begin? Because I know that there's a really amazing story behind this. Yeah. I, well, I, I got interested in it when I was a little kid, like a little kid. Because I was born in 1962, and there was all this fabulous, colorful pop culture happening. And when I was a little kid, I loved the TV show Batman. And, you know, such colorful characters. Their costumes were amazing. And I loved Catwoman. And I thought, yeah. And I, because I knew I was a Leo born in the year of the tiger, and, you know, kind of took all that to heart as a kid. Um, I thought, I'm like Catwoman. And, 
my first Catwoman was Eartha Kitt, and I also loved her because she was tiny, like me, but powerful. And she was always surrounded by leopard print. And so I found her particularly inspiring, and I had a photo of her that predated Batman where she's in a leopard coat with a cheetah on a leash, and I just thought she was fabulous. I thought Eartha Kitt was Catwoman's real name until I realized there were other <laughs> fabulous Catwomen as well. <laughs> And I believe um, you have met her when you were a small child. Is that correct? Yes. This is so wild. So my dad sort of snuck me into this cabaret for my birthday, and Eartha Kitt was performing. And she was just obviously owned the room. You felt a little bit like she was laughing at you, but she loved you all the same. You know, <laughs> she was just dazzling. Just stunning. And um, she purred and growled and danced. It was just incredible. And she actually came by the table afterwards. My dad arranged this somehow. And she said, hello, little girl. Your father said you wanted to meet me. And I just, <laughs> I plots. I didn't know what to do. Um, and I didn't say anything. And she just threw her head back and laughed and walked off. And it just left this incredible impression on me. That's a spectacular birthday gift. Thank you, Dad. Oh, right? Incredible. <laughs> um, I think for the sake of this episode, we should probably agree on a the definition that we're going to use of leopard print, because there are indeed different spotted patterns that belong to big cats that seem to kind of coexist in the popular conscious mind as leopard. So how would you like to define leopard print in our use of the term today? Well, I mean, there's a you know, a true definition of leopard print, which is that it's the pattern of a actual leopard printed onto fabric. But I'm going to use the colloquial definition, which is patterns of big cats. And because so many representations of the history of leopard print also show the fur, I'm including that, but I do make a differentiation for um, obvious purposes. Right. So it's a colloquial term that encompasses all the things that people call leopard print whether or not they are. Or leopard-esque, we could say, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, when do we first start to see human beings wearing leopard in the pictorial record? Well, I never like to say first when I'm talking about history. I feel like that's a I dangerous do the same thing, thing to say. Yeah. But, I always caution my students, to let go of the idea of who did it first. Yeah. But um, the most commonly known early recognized wearers of the leopard, usually the pelt, were Egyptian priests, priestesses, and nobility. Mm -hmm. And we see some goddesses and um, princesses in, in, I think there's a really lovely um, depiction of Nefertia Bet mm -hmm. wearing, wearing a leopard skin dress. And Hatshepsut, the, uh, one of the most important female king of Egypt, you know, she was responsible for so much building and so much of the building of the infrastructure of Egypt at the time. The leopard was one of her symbols mm -hmm. because she had been a priestess. Right. So they didn't have the separation of church and state as we think of it today. Right. And some of you may recall um, when we had Dr. Colleen Darnell on, she actually mentioned Egyptian Sem priests wearing these leopard skins. Um, and, and you might want to go back and check out our episode that we did with her if you want to learn a little bit more about Egyptian dress. Um, but, Joe, in your book, you talk about the various ways different cultures have held pattern cats up to be talismans of power. Um, what are a few of your favorite examples of this? Um, because you go into detail about many, many different cultures that have held 
spotted cats in positions of reverence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for purpose of conversation, keeping the conversation less than a day long. Um, <laughs> I'll just mention a few of my favorites. Um, An Egyptian goddess, Seshat, the goddess of writing and wisdom, wore leopard pelts. And um, another favorite is she's not wearing it, but she's represented. Um, The seated woman of Shalhiuk in Anatolia, where she's in a throne and on each side of her is a seated leopard. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's clearly some kind of uh, power sharing going on there, some kind of feeding off of each other's power. And I like, uh, there's a god, and, you know, he's sort of the god of leisure time. And as time passed, he came to be depicted in more effeminate ways. Dionysus, who is often mm, pictured yeah, wearing a leopard pelt, riding a leopard. So it, it's it's there. The more you look, the more you see. Yeah, so basically, like, um, the wearing of leopard transcends cultures and time throughout history. Everybody who ever knew about leopards was inspired by yeah. them. Um, and, and in these ancient cultures, um, we are, of course, speaking about the wearing of actual skins, not mm-hmm. textiles. Um, so what is the significance of wearing the fur of big cats? And how does this inform the early adoption of spotted cat motifs for painted, printed or woven textiles? When we see representations of people in art, especially the further back the art goes in history, they are usually significant people often people who are either very, very powerful or very, very wealthy. So we're definitely seeing images of power and wealth portrayed when we see all these images of people wearing leopard pelts. And that historically, you know, not all fabric doesn't always survive. Mm-hmm. And in some images, we can't tell if it's fabric or a pelt. Like they found um, a fabric pelt in King Tut's tomb and they don't know if it was for wearing decoration or just something symbolic for death they don't know that's amazing Mm -hmm. but definitely the fur represented power and wealth either the power and courage and achievement of actually conquering a leopard or the wealth to acquire the skin of this dangerous animal very dangerous animals Mm -hmm. they are dangerous to man right so so no matter what it's a status symbol through Mm -hmm. and through um, one of the things I especially loved about your book is that you have put in these little kind of sidebars or vignettes all the way through, um, and some of them speak about the cat species um, and their various protected statuses. And you also provide information about the organizations that care for and advocate for the health and well-being of these big cats. Um, what sort of responsibility as an activist did you feel when you were writing the book? I think that the greatest influencer of leopard print is the leopard itself, obviously. And all of the characteristics that leopards have of independence and resilience and beauty, and they're just incredible animals. So it's important to recognize what it, the part that it plays in culture. But one of the reasons it's so timeless is because it's natural. And the animals have been endangered by our appreciation of them, let me say, you know, people wanting to wear their fur as, you know, we gained easier means to kill them and gather them. Um, They became endangered in the 20th century because people were wearing them. Mm -hmm. So I wanted people to be conscious of the effect that the choice to wear the fur has. Right. And I wanted people to be conscious in the sense of general fashion sustainability of the effect that our fashion choices have on their environment, even if we're not wearing their fur. Right. Which is why I've gone 
uh, primarily to secondhand clothing. You and me alike. Yeah. Our <laughs> listeners know this already because I talk about it all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I've been collecting vintage all my life, but sadly a lot of the vintage that I collected when I was young doesn't fit me anymore, so I've been acquiring new vintage. Yeah. Um, I'd like to change the shift the topic a little bit and talk about the use of leopard print in 18th century France, mm-hmm. um, which is not at all a period that we typically associate with leopard print. But it was indeed a big thing then. Um, at the Museum of FIT, we actually have a really beautiful pale pink robe à la française. Um, it's a woven silk motif um, featuring flowers and also kind of entwined all through the the flowers are these ribbons and the ribbons themselves that are woven into the motif of the textile are leopard print, which is incredible. Um, what was the lure of leopard in 18th century France? Well, I didn't know anything about this. And I actually came across it on Pinterest of all things. Mm. Right. And so you never know where anything is from in Pinterest. So I had to go through all these old fashioned plates uh, and that kind of thing. And um it was. It's interesting because uh, Louis the Sixteenth was a big fan of exotic animals. So he had, you know, he brought over a zebra, mm-hmm. and um, he brought in, you know, exotic animal pelts. And of course, these animals are absolutely nothing new to Europe. But that the king was interested in them, put them in vogue, and it was a very decadent time, you know, leading up to the revolution, like all these incredible clothes. So. The print became almost like a playful version of the fur. Right. So it represented playfulness, almost what we would now think of as camp, uh-huh. I think. Uh, Which, by the way, I don't know if you've heard yet, but yesterday the Costume Institute just announced the new theme for the next gala exhibition, and it's camp. <sighs> well, there will be leopard print, no doubt, right? <laughs> um yeah, so it represented their decadence and their their ability to indulge, their sense of leisure, their playfulness. Um, and at the time, you know, when they very first started doing it, you know, they would sit out in front of the palace in these fancy clothes and eat so that people who weren't rich could watch them, mm-hmm. you know. So they were on display. They were entertainers of a sort. Mm-hmm. And then um, decadence began to go out of vogue. But Oh, I forgot to mention, I fell in love with macaronis while I was doing this research. Oh, yeah. How can you not? These young men who came out and were very fashionable, very extravagant, very eccentric, sometimes to the point of practically being disowned by their families. Yes. But they wore a lot of animal print, and they had influence on fashion. Mm -hmm. So... And we will absolutely, at some point, do an episode on dandyism and talk about those macaronis in more detail. <laughs> Have you read that book about macaronis? I think it's called Pretty Gentleman. Oh, no, I haven't read that one. Oh, you you have to. All right. Well, and it's got a pink cover. So it's very... There you go, listeners. Joe has a book recommendation for you. But then, uh, <laughs> you know, with the, with the revolution, it became less in vogue to dress in decadence and also became physically dangerous for people to go out on the streets in expensive clothing like they would be you know, seized as oppressors and get their heads chopped off. So not so much of that. Um, Just very quickly going back to what you were saying about the King's Zoo, um, Sebastian Mercier, who was a great social commentator and and writer of 18th century France, he actually talks about um, when the king brought a zebra into the zoo and how that affected menswear and saying that 
everything that everybody was wearing was covered in zebra stripes. And we actually have fashion plates at FIT where you can see that happening. It's pretty incredible. Oh, I read that and I saw pictures of the fashion plates. I haven't seen them. And some of them are more zebra-like, like what we think of as animal print. And some of the ones I saw were just stripes. Yeah. And he said that that was affecting the rage for stripes. Is that the same? Um, these are actually zebra stripes. Oh, I got to see Yeah, them. and it's like a it's like a lilac coat with zebra stripes on it. And then even his, his stockings have stripes on them oh, as well. I have to come <laughs> see that. I'm going to lose my mind. You're invited anytime. Yeah. We'll hear more from Joe after this sponsor break. Speaking of the French Revolution now and the impact that it had on the history of fashion, as we move into the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution is really going to be the thing that impacts um, people's access to clothing. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak to this in terms of leopard print or cat patterns as a trend in the 19th century? So uh, the Industrial Revolution led to a lot of uh, accessibility, as you said, in clothing. And, you know, prior to that point, remember, everything was handmade, including mm-hmm. the fabric itself. Uh, of course, you know, just because it's made in a factory doesn't mean that hands aren't involved. But nothing was mechanized. So there were no sewing machines. Everything mm-hmm. was all these extravagant clothing pieces that we look at or made by hand, incredibly expensive. And often um, they would be handed down to populations who didn't have as much financial resources. And of course, everybody had some knowledge of and sense of style, but not everyone could indulge in it. And a lot of them couldn't afford to have clothes that were impractical. And people own generally fewer items of clothing. Right. So you wouldn't be indulging in a novelty print like Leopard, for the most part, be very unusual for someone to do that. Everything had to have a multi-purpose Mm-hmm. And so as the Industrial Revolution basically pushes textile um, science forward and people are now mechanizing textiles, um, people there's an explosion of these things onto the market and things like leopard print, these novelty textiles begin to become available to more and more people as time passes. Um, so – As we've already discussed in antiquity, um, the wearing of skins was symbolic of power, Um, first in an association with the virility of the hunter, later sometimes holding even spiritual significance. Um, But as we move into the 20th century, um, leopard patterns continue to connote power, but the meaning shifts. Um, How does the media portray the wearing of leopard print in the early 20th century, particularly in terms of women? And who was wearing it? You would see uh, in the early 20th century, so many women depicted on film and silent films. You can see it a lot. And the femme fatale. Oh, yes. Wearing We love them. Yeah. And because women were, you know, wanting to be more independent and wanting more rights, the desire to keep them down on the farm and keep them in the kitchen was probably much stronger for some people. <laughs> and this was just about as far from the kitchen and the farm as you could get to be, you know, engaging with these um, dangerous animals and these supposedly dangerous lands. And um, so you would see these women in leopard skins, surrounded by leopard skins. Uh, you talked about, in one of your uh, previous podcasts, you talked about, I always mispronounce people's names. It's okay. 
Delise. Oh, Gabby Delise. Gabby Delise. So yeah. there's a great picture of her dressed in leopard skins. There's an Italian actress named Litigus in this silk painted leopard outfit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Louise Glome, you mm-hmm. know, and you'd see so many of them. And these styles were adopted by flappers and fashionable young women going from the mid teens into the 20s. And they would be wearing leopard fur coats. Mm-hmm. Because they're riding around in these unheated cars and they need something to cover their progressively skimpier clothing. Yes. <laughs> but there was also leopard print mm-hmm. present, like that picture of uh, Joan Crawford in 1928. Uh, Nancy Cunard, who was a famous surrealist muse, uh, wore a lot of leopard print. And so it was definitely present. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about sex pots. You know, femme fatales, showgirls. Mm. I love in your book, you call them undomesticated women. Yes. I, I got a thrill out of that one. I was like, <laughs> mad writer respect. Um, but uh, they were not the only ardent adopters of leopard print. It was and continues to be a staple of many of the world's most elegant fashion icons. Um, you have some great quotes in your book. Um, one of my favorites was from the former creative director of J. Crew, Jenna Lyons. And she basically just says, Oh, I, I consider leopard print to be. Be a neutral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, also, Diana Vreeland, you know, she said she never met a leopard print that she didn't like. And of course, Dolce & Gabbana, um, the Italian fashion designers, they've declared that without leopard print, there would be no divas. So, you know, high fashion and even haute couture has had a long-standing fascination with leopard print, most notably, I would say, in the work of Christian Dior. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Dior's use of leopard patterns and how this entered his oeuvre? Because I bet this is probably a little bit surprising to some people. Leopard print had been present, certainly, um, but it really made its presence in haute couture when uh, Christian Dior included a leopard print sheath called The Jungle, mm-hmm. and his 1947 debut collection. And which, it's spectacular. We <sighs> promised to try get a hold of it and put it on Instagram. <laughs> it is beautiful. Yeah, and, you know, if you go on the Christian Dior website now, they talk about how leopard print is a significant um, symbol of Dior. And it was partly influenced by uh, Mitza Bricard, mm-hmm. who was a hatter, a former courtesan, and one of... Uh, Christian Dior's great muses. Mm -hmm. And she always wore a leopard scarf around her wrist. And you would see her in leopard furs and leopard fabrics. And um, she was a very strong personality. And also, because of all the things that leopards can represent, when Dior's sister, Catherine Dior, survived the resistance after being in a concentration camp, he decided that the powerful leopard was also a good representation for her. So he named his perfume, Miss Dior, after his sister. And uh, the one of the symbols in the ads was the leopard's paw caressing a woman's hand. Oh, I mm-hmm. never knew that. Yeah. That's fascinating. I always, when I think of Miss Dior, I always think of that swan motif that's sometimes mm-hmm. associated with it. Yeah. If you just do a search for Miss Dior leopard, that image comes right up. But it was unfortunately Far too expensive to license. (laughs) (laughs) And listeners, just so you know, Joe and I were having a conversation about this before we started recording. But um, as writers, when we write these books, um, one of the things that hampers us from including images is image rights. So Joe did a lot, a lot of very difficult work putting all these gorgeous leopard images into her book. So 
go out and buy it so she can pay for them. Um, we're talking about haute couture and, um, you know, high fashion, the use of leopard. But I want to look at the other side because um, I think that it hasn't always necessarily held connotations of glamour. Um, it has also intermittently been seen as being in bad taste. <laughs> and I would even venture to say symbolic of moral turpitude. Why do you think this is? Why is leopard seen both ways? Well, again, there's that idea of when I say an, an undomesticated woman, what I mean is a woman who can't be held strictly to the kitchen or, see, I, my family's from Kansas, so there's a oh, saying. You I didn't can't, know that. So am I. Oh, you're kidding. No. Oh, my God. Kansas City. <sighs> well, we're from Smith Center and Pawnee Rock. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I was born in Denver, but yes. So a lot of that has to do with um, the idea that they always say in Kansas when someone is wants to go to the big city, oh, you can't keep a girl down on the farm. So when I say undomesticated, I literally mean not a farm animal, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and it's not, it's not a negative. I don't have negative connotations with being in the kitchen or on the farm. It's just, you know. A difference. But there are people who have negative connotations with women not being in the kitchen or on the farm. And those are the people who've given leopard print a bad rap. <laughs> so in the late 40s and the 50s, uh, leopard print started to appear on swimwear and lingerie. And of course, it was considered outrageous by a lot of people. Uh, the bikini was considered so outrageous. The pinup was considered outrageous by a lot of people. So it became associated with women who weren't afraid of being seen, women who weren't afraid of showing off. And to a lot of people, that's a negative connotation. Right. Uh, if she's willing to make herself visible, she must be willing to make herself available. She must be indiscriminating. She must not have any taste. I call it... Um, Culturally promiscuous. Um, <laughs> culturally <laughs> promiscuous. But it doesn't mean it just means they like leopard print, you know, and they and they might associate with that sense of independence that a leopard has. Right. A lot of people see an independent woman as non motherly. Right. Right. And to be motherly is fabulous and wonderful and glamorous all in and of itself. Yeah. One you, does not preclude the other. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can be a mother and an adventurer. You know, it doesn't make sense. But a lot of people want to set up these polarizations. Right, right. So leopard print took on that connotation, especially in the late 60s and early 70s, as the fur became illegal and only the print was available of being cheap and immodest at the same time that it was blowing up in high fashion in mm -hmm. East St. Laurent and at Studio 54 and Valentino. And Diane von Furstenberg. Diane von Furstenberg with her famous uh, walk of shame dress. <laughs> and so um, that connotation came to mean, you know, sort of a woman who didn't stick to her role. Right. But... History refutes this. Mm -hmm. um, when you consider who some of the great lovers of leopard print have been, um, would you like to name a few of your favorite ladies and why their adoption and love of leopard print has been significant? Well, I got to say, Eartha Kitt, you know, one of the things I found out about her as I got older was that she was an activist. Mm -hmm. She was actually blacklisted for being outspoken about her opposition to racist policies and the Vietnam War. Uh, so it came to represent for me substance as well as style. And there have been a lot of amazing women in leopard print. Um, I would say, gosh, there's so many. My mind is whirling. Um, Jackie O even wore, or Jacqueline Kennedy wore leopard print. Yes. She wore leopard fur. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. So I got it. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, and that coat was very influential and also led to some of the policies of, you know, making leopard fur illegal. But I was also inspired by punks a lot. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up in the 70s, rock and roll was mostly dominated by men. And Mm -hmm. then you had these punk rock women come in and front their own bands. And so I loved women like Wendy O. Williams and Debbie Harry even Grace Jones, that pe- some people may or may not think of as punk, that and they wore animal print like crazy, and it was almost a form of celebration of whatever ne- negative connotations it might have. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't care what you think of us. In fact, we're going to put it in your face. Right. And I just I loved that so much. More about the cats right after this. We talk about this on dress a lot about how the meanings behind these things a lot of the time are completely arbitrary, mm-hmm. um, you know, and 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 how interesting it is when those meanings shift and and regain, you know, the power over something that had previously meant something else. Well, what I've seen a lot with leopard print, and it might be the case with other things in fashion, is that it doesn't change meaning; it accumulates meanings. Mm-hmm. It seems like. The old meanings remain, you know, power, authority, status, at the same time that it could also be campy. It could also be playful. It could be casual, like that famous skirt on Instagram right now. What is that skirt, the realization skirt? Oh, I haven't seen this. There is this leopard skirt that is like the influencer skirt. It's a silk leopard print skirt and all the influencers are wearing it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the ladies wearing leopard print, stage performers, rock and roll ladies. Um, what about the gentlemen who are wearing leopard as well? And how does this relate to masculinity? Um, well, because leopard print represented warriors and authority and status and achievement on men in so many cultures, I think that um, that thread is always there. Mm-hmm. Rock and rollers wearing leopard print, especially male rock and rollers, and you see so much of it on glam yes. performers in the 70s. And then again in the 80s, it comes up. I think that it represents transgression in the sense that it had become somewhat feminized. Mm-hmm. And men in rock and roll have always liked to play with gender. You know, is this appropriate or is it not? So I've seen pictures of like David Bowie, Little Richard, um, Mark Bolin, just so many men in leopard and big cat prints that are just playing with the idea that people might think that they're effeminate and clearly not caring. Right. And, you know, that's the point, really. mm -hmm. And it's always dangerous to resist gender norms. But I have to say in the 70s, as I recall them, the homophobia and the sexism was epic. It was physically dangerous it was ill it was considered mentally ill to be gay right so for them to come out like this was incredibly transgressive Mm -hmm. to wear these outfits to say that they were bisexual or that they didn't mind being perceived as gay or effeminate like they didn't care and so leopard print was definitely one of the emblems of um yeah i like what i like and i'm not afraid of you and i'm going to do what i want right um on an even more granular level speaking of stage performers um what is the place of leopard print on the burlesque stage um, where the ultimate goal is to undress rather than dress? Well, uh, of course, we love costumes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because burlesque has a lot of roots in mid-20th century American culture, 
Uh, you see a lot of references. You know, there were a lot of uh, tiki interiors mm-hmm. and fuzzy Dyson cars and camp again, <laughs> camp again, the pinups. So um, burlesque, as it is now, has evolved out of pinup, rockabilly, and drag culture. Mm-hmm. So it it isn't only a reference to burlesque itself, and so the playfulness and the vividness and the uh, even a little bit the danger because there's a a type of burlesque that's really very fierce, mm-hmm. very aggressive, and the elegance of leopard print all fit well into the idea of this kind of display. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I'm actually working on an article about some of my favorite leopard print costumes in burlesque and drag because they are epic. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so overwhelmed by how beautiful the costumes people are making these days in burlesque and drag are and they're all completely unique like there's no other one like right. them. So I'm going to do um an article about that. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I think I wandered there, but <laughs> No, no, no. We like wandering. We like wandering. Um I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about your work as a performer in terms of feminism um, because you've been doing this for many years. Where does the art of the striptease fit in with contemporary feminism and what has stripping taught you personally? Uh, Well, I actually started out in strip joints and I was attracted to strip joints because of what I thought I knew about the history of burlesque, which wasn't present in the clubs I work in as much as... um, what we think of as modern-day strip joints. Mm-hmm. I do not have a hierarchy where one is good and the other is bad. They're clearly deeply related. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have one without the other, I feel. So for me, the idea of taking this... Like, I, I even when I was young, I really hated being catcalled on the street. Mm-hmm. But I loved attention. So I was like, ha- trying to figure out how do I balance that out. And I felt like when I went into the club... I could get that attention that I so enjoyed, but I could choose the moment at which it happened and the way in which it happened and set boundaries about what it meant and the circumstances. So I feel like in burlesque, we're doing that. But in addition to that, we are attributing an art form that has literally been handed down to us by generations of women. So I work for the Burlesque Hall of Fame, and we're preserving an art form that has been ridiculed, derided, made illegal, um, is definitely quarantined into mm-hmm. nightlife. And um, well, I mean, I love nightlife. So, but you know, there are a lot of even nightlife places that won't have burlesque at it. So it's the idea of representing this highly developed art form in the same way that I see pole dancing represented frequently as, you know, this art form that's unappreciated and diminished and trivialized and saying, no, we love this. We, we believe in it. We enjoy it. Um, and we think you'll enjoy it too. Just give it a chance. It'll change your life. And the idea then in burlesque, everyone can find an audience. Mm -hmm. So when I say everybody, I don't mean everybody one word. I mean, everybody two words. So um, you see people who are curvier than you'd expect to see. You see people in wheelchairs. You know, you may see someone with a mastectomy or have a disability and they come out and they get a standing ovation and it changes your ideas of what is fun to see, what's Mm -hmm. beautiful. So for me, burlesque represents a lot of unappreciated people that are coming into the spotlight and owning it. Mm -hmm. 
and redefining concepts of beauty or challenging them entirely, blowing them out of the water. I think if you're in the audience and you go and you see a show and you see a person whose belly is soft like yours and they take off their clothes and they show that belly and the room goes crazy with appreciation, you're like, this isn't a pep talk. This isn't a meme. This is really happening. Mm -hmm. These people really love it. And I think that can change your perspective overall of what it means to be seen. Right. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the New York School of Burlesque? If 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 this has inspired any of our listeners to um, to dabble, to stick their toe in the water? Yeah, I've been uh, running the New York School of Burlesque for about 14 years, and I have the extreme pleasure and honor of introducing people to things like fan dancing and tassel twirling and bump and grind. You taught me how to tassel twirl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing, right? It's yeah. just to do it for the first time and see yourself doing it. Um, and I actually, unbelievably to me, I get to travel the world. Like I had never left the continent. And with burlesque, I've been able to travel the world meeting people and saying, you can do this. You can tassel twirl. You can peel. You can be seductive and confident and attractive and have a good time mm -hmm. and not worry about standards of beauty, but just the pleasure of seeing and being seen. Right. So where can people find you? Um, because Fierce is not your only book, and you have actually worked in a few other types of media as well. Mm -hmm. um, you can go to joewalden.com and get directed to my various endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> of which there are many. There are more than a few, yeah. So um, I, uh, I think of myself as, you know, I'm an advocate for self-expression in fashion. Um, I'm an advocate for self-expression on stage, and I'm an advocate for sex workers' rights. So those are the three main things on my mind these days. Before we sign off, I'm wondering if you have any words of advice for our young preteen or teen dress listeners on how to be fierce. Just love what you love and let people know what you love, and you'll find other people that love it. Awesome. Good advice. Thank you, Joe. Mm -hmm. This has been a delight. Oh, it's so good to see you. It was so much fun. Yay. Thank you, Joe, for being here with us today on Dressed. April and I would both like to acknowledge the fact that the wearing of genuine fur of spotted cats is absolutely fraught with controversy. And these objects do exist in the world, perhaps in some of our own listeners' closets passed down from a grandmother or mother who wore them when the politics of animal conservation and protection was very different from what it is today. Yeah. In fact, Cass, it's, it's actually really interesting because there are very strict laws now governing the sale and exchange of items made from protected categories, such as uh, genuine leopard fur and ivory, um, mainly restricting their sale across state lines. And I occasionally moonlight as a certified appraiser of costume and textiles. And in the case of ivory and leopard, their protected status can sometimes actually lower the appraisal value of the items. You know, if it can't be sold out of state, your pool of potential buyers is, is obviously restricted and it may not be able to reach it, it, what we call its best and most appropriate marketplace. So the moral of our story, friends, honor our animal friends and stick with the prints and woven leopard motifs. That does it for us this week. May you consider introducing something perfectly fierce into your outfit next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at Dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. 
We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can email us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And as always, for additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's tee.public.com forward slash dressed. And thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. 